Welcome everyone to episode three of the Cascade podcast. Today, I have a very special guest and an actual member of Cascade joining us today, um, Enrico Miller. Will we just welcome, welcome, bro. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, mate. Um, yeah, excited to, to jump on, jump on here, give some interesting takes. Um, obviously, member of Cascade myself, so I have seen the other podcasts. Um, definitely got some, some good guys on, so yeah, happy to be part of the crowd. Yeah, I'm grateful this is finally happening. It's good. Um, so we'll yeah, be discussing yeah. everything from Web3 to the metaverse, um, to your experience in business and consulting, as well as going to some other topics, um, as including the rise of Andrew Tay and the Tate brothers. Uh, so definitely yeah. stick around everyone right to the end of this episode, cause it's gonna be a jam packed full of value. So before we get into it and all these topics of interest, could you just tell me more about yourself, who you are, what you do, uh, where you're from to all the listeners? Yeah, so uh, I'm Enrico, uh, as you can probably tell from my name, uh, I'm Italian. Uh, so I was born in Italy, migrated to the UK when I was around five years old. Um, and yeah, you know, I come from a quite a working class background, um, you know, very quite traditional background in that sense. And when I was around sort of 15, 16, I started to get into the world of kind of uh, promotions and sort of digital marketing at a very basic level on things like Discord and so on and so forth. Um, and then that then evolved into kind of uh, getting involved in the crypto space, Web3, um, started with a bit of trading, then moved into kind of marketing and management for Web3. And yeah, it's kind of gone up from there ever since. Uh, started my first agency when I was 17. Uh, I'm 19 now. By the way, so yes, yeah, so I was 17 when I started my first agency. We worked with over 100 clients there um, and then moved into consulting as well. Uh, and now I'm kind of dabbling in other industries so, such as uh, celebrity marketing and renewable energy. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, I've, I've always been doing many things concurrently. So I don't really kind of do one thing exclusively and then knock out everything else, you know, so even when I was doing crypto, I was still doing social media promotions. And now that I'm doing crypto, I'm doing this other stuff. So it's always a bit of everything. Um, but that's kind of, you know, a rough summary of my, my business journey, uh, currently working on a, around seven businesses, um, with me and, me and my business partner. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And I know we'll dive into it more in the future. I mean, later in this episode, but something you also told me recently is that you like to focus on also, even though you have all these different multitude of business ventures, you also do like to focus on one thing and actually do it properly and commit yourself to it. Yes. So, yeah. and at yeah. such a young age at 19, you've had a multitude of also opportunities and experiences as a result. So let's just go back like right from the mm -hmm. beginning, like you said, the discord originate, like where it originated from. How yeah. did you just like decide to, yeah. How do you tell us a bit more about that story? Yeah, it's, it's quite a funny story actually. So what would happen is, um, I wasn't really kind of school wasn't, you know, I, I liked school. It was okay. I could do it, but I, I wanted to try of try and see <clears throat> other, what, what the, the online world had to store, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. like making money and, and kind of doing things a little bit differently because, you know, my parents both come from a very working class background. They've never had these opportunities. And I knew a lot of people who, um, like I had a lot of friends in London and Manchester that were going down paths that were pretty like dark, you know, like a lot of people that were coming from working class backgrounds, getting involved in stuff that was just not it, man. Like, you know, ended up in 
in jails, doing loads of stupid stuff, you know, and I kind of realized that you have to kind of seize the opportunity early and, and, and get some understanding and get some value. Otherwise you can very easily fall down that path if you're, if you're not careful. Um, so I started getting involved in discord, just using it quite casually. Um, it's interesting because Discord's is very popular now, but I was using it like way back in the day, man, like way, like it only been out for like a couple of years, like a year and a half, something like that. And what would happen is I started to just community manage kind of just these big servers. Cause at the time, like if you had a server with like 10,000 members, that was crazy. Like that was, that was, that was like, that was nuts. Um, and I yeah. started managing them. And then, and then I remember the first time someone was like, oh yeah, I'll pay you $15 to promote my <laughs> server. Right. And at the time that was like, that's crazy. Like what the hell, you know, I was like. Yeah. I was very young. I was like 15 or something. And I was like, that's, that's so cool. You know, someone's actually paying me for this. Like, that's crazy. And then what happened is my friend introduced me to crypto. Uh, he's like, you know, he's like a brother to me. Now we do all business together. You know, we've been school friends since we were like 10, like we travel together, uh, kind of share stuff, share money, share everything. Um, but anyway, yeah, mm -hmm. he introduced me to crypto a little bit, got me involved in that was telling me all this stuff. And I remember, I went to the founder and I was like, you know, all these crypto projects, they're all on Telegram. You know, we, what about Discord? Like no one, no one's using yeah. Discord at the time, literally no one was, you know? And, and then he, and you know, I made him a Discord and helped him grow it and his token actually pumped. Right. And he, and he was like, and I was doing this for free, by the way, I honestly thought like, no one's going to pay me for this. Like no, no one's paying me for this. And then he paid me like $2,000, $1,500 or something. And, and like, for me at that age, I was like 16 or something like that. And 17, I don't know. And he, that was mind blowing because that was more than sometimes my parents would make, you know? And, and I was just like, this mm. is, this is crazy. Like, you know, I've seen people risk their lives for this kind of money. I've seen like, my dad was a coal mm. miner, man, you know, like it's, it's hard work, you know, wow. so it's so hard work to earn that kind of money, you know? So then I, and I was getting this amount of money and I was like, well, I have a genuine niche skill here that people don't have. Like it just didn't exist. Like there was no one doing discord stuff. So I found a kind of gap in the market that I fell into naturally and then applied it to businesses that didn't have it. And I, and I would advise anyone who's young to kind of think about the stuff you do like this, in the sense that the habits you have as a young person, older people will see as skills, right? So if you spend all day on TikTok, mm. like a lot of people might say, oh, I have no, I have no real skills, but like, you know, if you can chop up a TikTok reel, if you can, if you know, these like latest apps or these latest technologies that like older businesses might not really be tapped into that, that is genuinely an asset because there will, I promise you, there will be some way that you'll be able to apply that to old school businesses and people will pay you for it. Um, and it's about finding that exact niche. And, and that's kind of how I started. Uh, and then, yeah, from there, it was all kind of, it was a bit of a snowball because then I started offering sort of discord services as like, as a service to many crypto projects. Mm. And then obviously as it became saturated, I had to learn, you know, more skills and, you know, move into proper you know, marketing, you know, SEO and you know, paid ads and the, the whole job lot. Um, but mm. always at, at that, you know, at that point it was always very web three exclusive, you know, a lot of these agencies and a lot of people were kind of e-commerce or drop, you know, whatever. And then they moved into web three, applying the skills from e-commerce to web three, whereas I've always been kind of web three native. And I think that's always given me a little bit of an edge because I know web three from like an inside view. I know exactly how it kind of blew up. I know exactly how to community manage in a really web three way. And I think that's what gave my agency that, that kind of cutting edge over a lot of these kind of real estate or econ companies that just migrated to Web3.
Um, but that, that's, yeah. how, that's how it started out. And it, it is quite a funny story because I don't have like a business background. I don't have like a dad who was like in a company or like, I don't have like a friend who was in real estate. You know what I mean? Like a lot of, you know, I, I, there was no kind of sweet entry point. It just sort of happened. Um, and I think it's important that you're always like looking for opportunities and ways that you can apply skills or, or just habits you have uh, into, into new, into new businesses. And I think that's how you find these kind of opportunities. You know, they say, uh, luck is like a combination of uh, kind of opportunity and preparation, right? So, you know, you, exactly. like these things will fall on your plate if you're, if you're kind of just looking around that, you know, how it could be applicable. Yeah. That's some of the best, uh, that your story in itself is one of the best stories that could happen because it's just how it's not the norm. Like it's unconventional. Um, yeah. and that allows you to become where you are today. Um, and I, myself is like I said, not the web three native, I'm actually e-commerce side of it. And I'm actually looking to transform in the future. So you're already ahead of the head of the curve and that's your competitive advantage mm -hmm. that you have against most of the guys in the space. So before we get into yeah. all of, um, the cryptocurrency and the web three technology, um, because that did originate from, like you said, the transition from telegram to discord and you fulfilling that, yeah. that kind of opened yeah, your mind yeah. up to it. And that like, mm -hmm. but you were ahead of the curve by like years mm -hmm. and we'll talk all about years in advance. So like, before we go into all of what cryptocurrency actually is, what web three is actually, could you briefly explain to us, like, like actually what it is, like, what is web three and cryptocurrency? So yeah, there's a lot of confusion on this and I actually want to, I think it's actually a good point to touch on. Now there's a lot of buzzwords that get mixed up here. So web three blockchain and crypto. Now, something that I want to clear up that a lot of people don't get is blockchain technology has existed since the nineties. Blockchain technology is not new. Okay. So the, the basic core concept, the fundamental concept of blockchain tech has, a, you know, a, and, and basic cryptography has existed for a while, but the breakthrough came when people applied this technology to finance a form of currency, a, a cryptographic currency, right? So that, then that's what we commonly refer to as crypto. So crypto is essentially a form of currency or, 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 or fungible token. So, you know, something that can go up and down, something that can um, be sold, something that there's many copies of. So there's many Bitcoins, there's a supply of Bitcoins, there's a supply of Ethereum um, on the blockchain. And as a result is um, cryptographic. Uh, now, in terms of what it means that, you know, what it means for a currency to be cryptographic or for a currency to be, you know, cryptocurrency, it, you know, it basically comes with a series of fundamental properties. Okay, so the fundamental properties include that it's on a public ledger, which is the blockchain. Uh, it's secure in the sense that, you know, it's secure by what's called a smart contract, which is basically a set of rules by which the currency sort of adheres to that can't be interfered with by central banks, by central bodies, by central governments. They can't just come in and say, oh, well, Ethereum now works like this. They can't do that. Whereas with fiat currency or, you know, what we would call norm normal money, um, they can't, the government can interfere and say, well, actually we're printing an extra trillion dollars today and there is nothing mm -hmm. anyone can do about it. And that's just how it is. And then, the, you know, hence inflation and, and so on and so forth. But the, the beautiful thing about cryptocurrency is that it's very much in the hands of the people that develop it, the people that develop the smart contracts, you know, it's kind of for the people, by the people in that sense. However, I do want to also, um, destroy this illusion that crypto is completely decentralized. I see a lot of decentralized yeah. sort of decentralization maxis that say, oh, well, crypto is decentralized. It's basically like you can do what you want. 
and and it's and you know there's no central powers it's kind of like a wild west it's just complete nonsense okay that there is an ethereum foundation okay that is a central body whether you like it or not it, it, crypto is not decentralized in the sense that no one controls it that is, that is a fantasy OpenSea is a company, Ethereum is a company, they have central powers, they can decide what to do. I mean, think about it, Ethereum just went from, just went, moved to uh, proof of stake, right? Um, yeah. Instead of um, the old model, right? So, well, it's like, if it was decentralized, how did that happen, right? Okay, it's not decentralized. It's, 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 it's decentralized from central banks and the government. It's not completely the, the idea that it's just this sort of yeah. free roam. No one controls it. It's just it's it's, it's a complete illusion. So I, I also want to make that clear. And and the last thing is the term Web three. So Web three is a summative term for anything that involves um, new technologies built on top of blockchain, whether that's cryptocurrencies or NFTs, non fungible tokens. Um, the metaverse, you know, all these different terms, they come under like the, this, this one thing called web three. A lot of people describe web three as kind of, uh, the evolution of web two, web two being, you can now publish your own thing. Whereas web three is now you can own it. It's not owned by these big corporations. It's mm. kind of owned by you through your identity on the blockchain. Um, so that's the kind of summative description of web three, but you know, it's interesting because a lot of these terms are new. They, they get often confused. A lot of people say, oh yeah, blockchain was invented when Bitcoin happened. No, no, it wasn't. Or they say, you know, if crypto is decentralized, you know, you just get all these random terms being thrown around and um, people have to be careful, you know, because when there's a new industry, you know, people, there's a lot of misinformation and the things people don't pretend to understand, but they don't, they don't really understand. Um, no, but it's, it's interesting. You know, I've, I've seen debates. I had an interesting one where there was an NFT collection that, um, basically some of the tokens got stolen from a, from a holder, someone like clicked mm. the link, their PC got hacked, the hacker sent them to themselves. Now the founders were thinking of putting, of changing the metadata of the NFT, just to have a little sign on it saying, you know, stolen, do not buy. So, so that the, the, the thief couldn't resell them so they could try and, you know, find a better solution. Now, Smart, yeah. a lot of people actually, actually objected to that. This is the funny thing. A lot of people objected to that and said, this contradicts what web three is you changing the metadata is going against decentralization. You can't just change the metadata. What's the point? We might as well just be a normal company at that point. Right. So, so it's, it's an interest. It's a genuine, like some degree of sort of almost philosophical debate over what, what decentralization is. Um, I, I don't really, yeah, I, I don't really buy that whole line of, you know, everything's decentralized, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining the entire, so we have kind of like a base now to like build upon because I feel like we jumped straight into, um, your experience and your knowledge would have just gone some right over people's heads. Um, so yeah. you briefly also we touched upon then is that the centralization and decentralization aspect of it, we will talk about FTX later on. Um, but in this whole aspect, how many years have you been involved in the space and what niches within web three have you been kind of undertaken yeah so i have been involved in the space since around 2019 20, 2019 i mean I've, I've heard of the space you know loosely since around sort of 20 
2018, but I've only truly started getting involved, um, sort of 2019, um, yeah, around, around 2019. And it was an interesting time to get involved because obviously it missed the kind of 2017 sort of blow up, but it was before the 2021 sort of bull run, right? Um, and what that meant was that I was at an interesting time where things were very much starting to change. So I kind of jumped in at a point where meme coins were blowing up a little bit right before their ultimate fall, basically. So for people that don't know, meme coins or so-called shit coins are basically cryptocurrencies that can go up and down by like a thousand percent or 500% or whatever in the space of literally hours. Like these are things that have such low market caps that it's almost gambling. Now, some, some, some meme coins can maybe go the distance and they maybe last six months. It basically, they have no huge intrinsic value and you're essentially investing in a community or a founder or a, or a joke or something you think is like Dogecoin, right? Like Dogecoin is one of the only examples of a meme coin that, 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 that it's like, there is no intrinsic value to it besides the fact it's actually a fairly nice way of sending money and receiving it in quick time with low fees. Um, but it's just, it's dope, right? It's just a meme, but you're essentially investing in a sort of perpetual community that exists. Um, but in 90% of cases that never happens and these coins just go up and down and it's a bit of a, a bit of a shit fest to be honest. Um, but that was the kind of space hmm. I got into to start with, not voluntarily. It was just that that was the kind of space that sort of my friend was in and that those were the ones that wanted to get discords up and it just sort of, because you know, like, you know, big cryptocurrencies, like giant ones, like, you know, Ethereum and stuff like they weren't going to message me like, Hey, can we set up a discord? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, so I, it was more of like the lower end of things to start. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was kind of starting with meme coins and those started really declining. Uh, and then as obviously we went into the sort of 2021 bull run, that's when I got into NFTs and NFT projects. Um, and that was, that was huge. NFT that, you know, NFT projects went from being like, or just NF, the term NFT became from being virtually unknown at the start of 2021 to being one of the, it was more searched than the word crypto, I think at some point, like, uh, you know, in, in sort of Google wow. search term history, it was searched more than like, it was searched more than Ethereum. It was, so, you know, at some point, I'm pretty sure like, NFTs were being searched more than like stocks. Like it, it was crazy, but like sort of Jeez. anywhere from sort of June, June to sort of December, 2021, there was NFTs just blew up you know you had athletes were launching them you had celebrities launching them you had companies it was crazy and 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 that was when my agency really i mean my agency was doing well regardless but that was when it really things really picked up i mean we were generating millions for for clients left right and center we were doing loads of revenue a month i mean like it was it was a very good season to to be involved in a lot a lot of these projects were kind of either art projects, very kind of similar to Board Ape Yacht Club, or they would like utility projects, like sort of games or, you know, uh, sort of gambling projects. or you know, it's the, it's the big mix of things. That's what's beautiful about NFTs is that they can literally be anything. Like, and I, and I mean that sincerely. I mean, it mm. can literally be anything. You know, it can be like a, mm. a contract. It can be a, an asset on a game. It can be an art piece. It can be anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, so really meme coins and NFTs, I did a bit of trading, 
kind of very early on. I got some look, kind of slightly lucky investments, but I've, I've tended to stay away from trading because I, I like doing mm. interesting stuff. I like building stuff. I like traveling. I like meeting people. I like having interesting stories. I don't really like sort of putting money on a screen and then the screen going up, the, the chart <laughs> on the screen going up and then I made more money for money. You know, I, I just like, I, I respect it. If that's what you do, it's what you do. I, it's just, I find that a little, I find it mundane. I find it a little, yeah, I feel like you're not building anything. I find it a little parasitic. If I'm yeah, you aren't. Yeah. Um, but you know, I like, I, I do hold some long-term positions in some cryptos, like I'm not going to lie, but I don't, I'm not really, I've never been one of these sort of active crypto traders, you know, you know, mixing, matching portfolios every day or watching the signals. And I, I just, I, I really, it's really that side of crypto is, I understand it because just being in the space, I, I know loads of people that do that stuff, but I, it's just not for me, man. Like, a, and then for anyone that's looking to get into web three. I, I would not recommend starting with trading. Like, this is what's funny is that a lot of like, when mm. I tell that's just not normal people, people that aren't really in business and finance spaces that I, I do crypto, right? To them, the concept that I do crypto and I don't trade makes no sense to them. Like no sense because like, yeah. to most people, when I say I do crypto, they just mean, they, they think I invest basically, right? So a lot of them mm. will come to me and say, oh, well, you know, Enrico, like you, you do, you, you're this crypto guy, right? Like you, what, what, what do I invest in? You know, I have, I have like 200 bucks, like, well, you know, I want to, I want to have some extra spare cash, which I invest in. And I always tell people the same thing. If you want to get into crypto or just anything like business wise, do not invest in finance, like any kind of financial market with that kind of money. You, you should, it's, it's the worst thing you could do, right? Because mm. let's say you invest in a 10, you, you put $200 right in a, in a crypto right and then by some miracle you man even though you're a complete beginner you, you put money into a a great crypto and it 10x's in a week you've gone from two hundred dollars to two thousand dollars now i'm not gonna be distasteful and say that that's not a lot of money because to, to many people that is a lot of money but the truth is you're, you don't have a cash flow all you've got now is $2,000, which is going to slowly burn out. And $2,000 isn't going to change your life, if I'm being honest. And you haven't learned any no. skills, right? And you've got an amount of money that's just going to burn out. So what are you going to do? Just keep trying to have 10x traded, trades each month to survive? I mean, it's, it's not sustainable. And even then, the chance of you even coming remotely close to a 10x trade on your first kind of bench, I mean, nearly everyone gets rocked in crypto at least once. Like the chance of you getting a 10x trade mm. in crypto on your first try is just... It's so low. Like I, I really, if you're kind of watching this and thinking, yeah, I want to get into web three, don't go into trading, learn web three, learn how the projects work, find a skill that you have in traditional business and see how web three projects can benefit from it. You know, be, be a builder in that sense. And then if you, you know, if you have the wealth to, to put 10 K on a, on a, on a token, then fine. You know, if that's for you go into trading, but if you are kind of starting from zero or like low four figures, or, you know, you're, you're really starting out in your sort of finance journey of building up wealth, trading, you know, this is beyond crypto. For me, I, I think trading and, and is, is not what you should start in, in any industry, yeah, unless you're already rich. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, very important thing you touched on there. I'm grateful you touched on that. Um, and that was also, that's with everything like, there's no point, like you said, in investing into whatever X man capital into something that's going to be a moonshot of a chance. Um, it's not sustainable at all. And I feel like also the entrepreneurial space, learn you learn that pretty either, quickly. Like... You don't, you don't, yeah, you don't, you learn nothing. And I feel like 
especially in this day and age, everyone tries to go for the quick money grab. You got to build skills from the ground up. And when you have the skills and you can provide value to the marketplace, when kids, if you actually realize when you provide value to the marketplace, that's when you solve a problem and that's when you get rewarded for your efforts. Um, and then you actually build something sustainable. So, um, we actually just entirely just then touched upon like what to avoid, what not to look out for. So clearly if you guys don't listen to this, you're not really switched on enough. Yeah. I just wanted to add something to that as well. Um, with the kind of, um, when I say, you know, don't invest in, um, like financial markets instead invest in yourself, right? Like invest in yeah. something, you know, if you really, if you have like a hundred dollars and you're like, look, I, I, I want to spend it. Like you're telling me not to invest Well, that I don't like, what am I supposed to do? Just, you know, nothing. Well, in, invest in yourself, find a course, find, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe use the money to travel somewhere where you can meet someone. I don't know, you know, invest in yourself because if you invest in yourself and you learn a game changing skill that's, that's going to provide value to the market, you can now from a hundred, 200, $500 spend potentially be earning multiple four figures a month consistently and you're learning, right? That that's a much more higher value thing than, than trying to put it in Elon Musk, Inu, Doge, Pump coin mm. 100, right? <laughs> You know, I, I, I yeah. urge everyone to, to kind of take that approach, but, um, but yeah, no, yeah, carry on. Yeah, no, exactly what you said. It's like you could throw into Doge, you could throw into S and P 500, whatever you do, a hundred dollars investment in like, as your kind of like, if you're a lower net worth, it's not worth it at all. It's like the analogy of you could spend a hundred dollars into buying five books that could completely change your life. Like there's different returns that you could see. And when you kind of shift your perspective on that, like you said, you receive an untapped skill. Um, and then your income will naturally just grow. So great points of topic. And we also briefly touched upon that, the utility behind the NFT projects and what to actually focus on. I came to you asking for advice earlier this year. Yeah. Um, you provided a lot to me and that was extremely valuable, transformed my understanding on it. Um, and not a lot of people are focusing on the actual groundwork, the utility-based stuff that actually is of value, not just complete uncorrelated, not yeah. relevant stuff. And that's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one with Web three. A lot of people, and and I as a Web three native, I'm very critical of Web three in this sense that I think a lot of people are making a mistake of having a product and saying, "Oh, well, I could attach Web three to this," and then what you find is adding Web three to this just creates an, a, a myriad of problems. When in reality, people need to reverse the mindset. Project owners need to reverse the mindset. What you need to be doing is there is a product that has a problem. I can solve this with Web3. That's that's a good use of Web3. Just saying, I have a video game. Let's make a crypto token attached to it. That's not solving. That just looks like a money. It just is a money grab. Because what are you solving? There is no intrinsic reason to add Web3 to that. You're just you're just forcing it for nothing. I mean, it's like, for example, it's like I've seen people say, oh, well, that uh, uh, you know, a trading card or something would be better as an NFT. You know, maybe sometimes, but does that justify a price point that's about ten times what you'd pay for a packet of trading cards? You know, I, I don't think so. You know, so mm -hmm. people have to really think about where is Web three actually solving an, an an issue. Just adding Web three to things doesn't do anything. There's no intrinsic value. That's why I say that people have to all. I, I doesn't you know my two favorite words in. in Web3 is intrinsic value, is in, in value that is intrinsic to the fact it's Web3, not just you're adding something to a product that just doesn't need it. 
and, and it's a massive, I've worked with hundreds of projects and I, and I, and I mean, and that's not hyper, hyperbole, like hundreds of projects I've worked with and all the ones that maybe do sort of okay or fail or just kind of, you know, succeed and then just fall in a month or two do so because there's no intrinsic value to what they're doing. They're not solving an issue with web three. They're just releasing something and then sort of saying, oh, we're we'll, we'll doing, we're doing an NFT for it as well. And then, you, then you've just generated $2 million and the, but the product's the same. The product is exactly the same. There's mm. just now you've just got an extra million dollars for no, no reason. So, and, and that's why web three yeah. gets a bad name. A lot of people like, and, and rightful and rightfully so people need to be held accountable. You can't just raise multiple million dollars through an NFT project and not have an intrinsic value to that NFT. Right. So for example, people, well, people might say, well, what is intrinsic value? I'll give you a great example. Um, in the country of there is, um, supply chain and logistic issues, not just in the country, to be honest, globally, there is shipping logistics and supply chain sort of legacy pain points are a real problem for kind of backlog and keeping things in order when it comes to shipping and, 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 and mass trade and exports on, you know, huge, huge global scales. And a great way to solve that, right, is through blockchain. Now, people might say, well, how does blockchain solve that? Well, if you were to turn shipping certificates and things like that into NFTs, that's a very powerful tool. It means they're unforgeable. It means that you can't, um, it, it solves so many legacy pain points when it comes to messing up invoices, messing up accounts. It means that it's on a public public ledger. So you avoid corruption because everything's on this public ledger. So see, that's a point where you have a problem in a legacy form of institution that's being solved by web three. Okay. And, and that's where that's intrinsic value. That's something that NFTs have intrinsically. They're public, they're non-forgeable, they're non-fungible. These are intrinsic properties of NFTs that are now going to solve something that you, you, you couldn't solve in, in, in the kind of legacy, uh, system. Right. And, and that doesn't, and then you know, people might think, well, it's a global, you know, government scale. How, what about a smaller level? You know, the same thing could apply to some games could apply to some networking groups and, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I would just say is if you're like a thinking of getting involved in web three as a project founder, think very carefully about how you're piecing together a product and web three, because it's, it's, it's honestly, it's the 99% of projects that go to zero do so because they haven't understood the value of what they're adding to the, the world essentially with, with web three, they've misunderstood the notion of value and they're just adding a sort of extra for no reason. And it's, it's bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, yeah. people are starting to understand, but it, it's gonna, it's gonna take time. Great example. Great. Very good example. Mm -hmm. Um, you have, you keep this intrinsic value notion, uh, on the forefront of your mind and of your business, Benko and H7. And I'm going yep. to put you on the spot here, but you've also, you've managed over 130 clients for, for, is it just Banco? 130 for Banco. Um, uh, so and yeah, 130 through, through Banco services. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And that's generated your clients of a, a client of 130 around $20 million. Um, so yep. is there, yep. do you have any piece of advice or actually just learning that you kind of like received 
from those, that experience of managing 130 and generating over 20 million? Um, from like a, from like a business management perspective. Yeah. There was a, a lot of lessons. Um, yeah. The first thing is, um, be super careful about cutting corners when it comes to hiring people. So right at the very start of Benko's, like I'm talking right at the very beginning, we were only a couple of clients, you know, at first, uh, I was thinking, you know, just hire a couple of people kind of as cheaply as possible. You know, I had this, I had this idea that, you know, the, the lower the cost, the greater the profit, because it seems so, it seems so <laughs> obvious, the lower the cost, the greater the profit, yeah. but it's not true because the lower the cost, the lower the quality, the lower the quality, the less the profit. So what we found is for like, you know, a couple of our clients, I was seeing, you know, people that I was trying to, you know, like, I was trying to find ways to cut corners and do this, that, and the other. And I, and I realized very quickly that, still, you know, you might save a hundred dollars on cost, but if you're costing yourself a, like sort of client reputation or quality of service, it's not going to work. And what I found is that as a founder, I had to spend more time consistently intervening my, you know, spending more time myself saying, Hey, I need to fix this for this client. Cause this is not, this is not how it should be done. And you know, stuff like that. Um, and what you find is that that's not saving you money. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's burning money. It's burning time. It's the worst approach you could possibly take. And, and I'm glad I learned that lesson very early because as soon as I did, I decided, look, I, you need to kind of just, but you know, man up, put your money where your mouth is, spend what you need to spend. And, and in the long term, you will see a far greater return. That's the first lesson I learned in business management. And, th and this is from someone that at the time I had no business experience. I'd never spoke to anyone who owned the company. I didn't know anyone who owned the company. I, I knew nobody, right? So this is like a real, and, and I think it's valuable to have this online because a lot of people that come on podcasts and come on things, they, they say a lot of things that like they say, oh yeah, like, you know, and then you just sort of get a lawyer and then you get an account as if, as if everyone has access, not, not everyone has access to these things, man. Like a lot of people forget, like in a lot of like real working class communities, there no, not everyone has a sort of friend who's an accountant or a friend who's a lawyer or, you know, it, it's hard to like, I, I went into this, like not knowing anything. I didn't know about taxes. I didn't know about legals. I didn't know anything. Um, and that's the second thing I want to draw up on is try and inform yourself on legals and taxes as much as possible and do your own research on, on how it works, especially if you're going into crypto, man, I've had my bank account shut. I've had the whole matrix attack so, as it's <laughs> popular to say nowadays. Um, yeah. and, and it's not even because I did anything wrong. It's because I didn't understand how to protect myself. I didn't see the advantage of just LLCing to, you know, to, to remove liability from my own personal accounts and, and so on and so forth. I didn't understand that because you, you know, no one tells you these things. There isn't just a mm -hmm. website that just says, oh yeah, by the way, not LLCing is a terrible idea because it means your personal bank account could be shut for X, Y, and Z when you're doing it. No one tells you that unless you know someone in the space, you just don't know that. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of people forget these things because they think it's just so obvious that everyone should just know, but a lot of people don't know. So I, I want to reiterate it that, you know, just on a basic level, Google, you know, why should I incorporate my company in X country? How does incorporation work? You know, like really research these things because it's so easy to just forget, uh, especially if you're young, especially if you're 16, 17, you start taxes on it, yes, whatever, someone else will do it, mm -hmm. you know? And then, it, and then it comes back to bite you. So the other thing I learned very quickly in, in Benko was, you know, I needed to 
really understand how LLCing and accounting and, and all this legal stuff work because I, 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 I got screwed over a little bit. I didn't lose any, anything massive, but it, you know, it was a massive headache, you know, bank account got shut and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it, and I realized it, it would have been so much easier if I'd just known this from the beginning. Um, yeah, I'd say another thing I learned is try and be as involved as, in operations as possible as a CEO or as a co-founder at the beginning. Mm. Okay. There's this illusion mm. that people have that Mr. CEO can just start a business and then you can sort of just outsource it all and you don't have to do anything. That is a complete, it, it, I mean, in theory it's possible, but, but what that means is you don't know the operations. How can you know when someone who you're outsourcing or working with is doing something wrong, if you've never done it, how can you do yeah. If you're not a master of, op every, I think every co-founder should be an absolute master of operations. Like you should be a CRM God, you know, you mm -hmm. should understand funnels. Like th these are fundamental skills. I think everyone needs to know because otherwise, if someone in your team's maybe got something incorrect or something's not functioning in your business, the idea that one of the people you've outsourced is just going to point that out to you by default, is just a delusion. You need to have the, you need it for the first couple clients do as much as you can kind of yourself operations wise, so you can build and optimize and understand and crucially understand so that when you're at a hundred clients and something's not functioning in the pipeline, you're not helpless. You, you know, exactly how the operations worked, you know, exactly what's moving and what's not, you know, exactly how the system and the cogs are turning. Um, and that's something I found benefited me greatly was that, for example, like tools, like, you know, I'm not gonna, like, I'm not trying to sponsor anyone or anything, but you know, there's great tools like monday.com Salesforce, mm. um, mm. Slack, like all these tools absolutely when you're starting a business, choose one and master it to the absolutely master it. Because mm. if you can, if you have a good understanding of how to build funnels, operations, use some of these custom tools to a really good degree, you can kind of build anything and like the experts can come in and have the subject knowledge, but you can sort of build anything and you can fix anything when it goes wrong, because you'll have a kind of great overview of, of, how, of how it looks, what, what should happen and what shouldn't. Uh, and I feel like a lot of founders are genuinely quite lazy when it comes to stuff. Oh, oh well, you know, CRM, yeah. oh, well, that's just oh, the, 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 the manager, the manager can do that. The admin can do it. It's not my problem. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. there's people that do that, you know? But, and, and what that means is then when you've scaled from 10 clients to a hundred clients and all of a sudden the manager can't handle all the fixes on his own or it's something's going wrong, you know, and you're just left clueless because you don't actually know how the operations, you don't know how operations work in general. Um, so I think in it, well, I guess what I'm trying to hit, you know, to summarize what I'm saying is I think every CEO and co-founder should in some senses be a COO, a chief operations officer or operating officer mm -hmm. at, to a basic level at the start of a business. I think every, every, I think it's a great skill to have. And I think it's skills that you will have for life and can take to any business. It means that you can also, it's another thing. It means you can go into another business and understand mm. what's going wrong. This is mm. the key. If you understand operations and CRMs, you can go into someone else's business. If you're doing an acquisition or if you're partnering up and say, look, actually this funnel should work like this and you could rearrange this like this and you could do all this stuff if you if you don't have the operations knowledge you, you can't do that and I, and I honestly think other people will appreciate you a lot if you can just look at in a, in, a, in 15 minutes look up their business model and their operations and say yeah this this and this this should be fixed people will appreciate it massively um so yeah i mean these are the, those are i'd say the three key lessons i learned 
from kind of starting up in Benko services. And I think those three key lessons, um, just to round off, are the reason why I'm able to manage so many businesses at a time. A lot of people, you know, say, mm. oh, well, you know, you're working on seven businesses, but you also say that you take everyone seriously. How that, that doesn't make sense. You can't fit those two things together. And I mm. say, no, it, they can fit together if you're an operations master, you know, not to, so, you know, yeah. honestly, I, yeah. I'd say that one of the things, you know, one of my great skills has been operations, understanding how things flow, how funnels are made, how to manage people. And I think if you learn those fundamental things, you can manage as many businesses as you want, because none of them will ever reach a point where they will go so wrong that you will not have the, the headspace, the, the thought process, the, the, the skills to fix it. Extremely powerful points. You just entirely touched on that. Wow. Okay. Sorry, Deepak, this a little bit. Um, there's also a learner I actually just learned sorry, today. I feel like well, I'm rambling just actually re reiterate. No, you're good. No, you're good. That's dude. That's incredible. <laughs> um, there's also I feel like there's also the myth of in business management. If you're the CEO and you make a workplace culture that you that only the people that are a part of your team bring you solutions only, is completely makes a complete mess. They should be giving you problems because you're the, like you said, you're the one that actually look, looks over and you're the actual master of operations. Um, and when you create a solution based kind of culture, the entire show goes to trash. It doesn't go anywhere. It's not uh, sustainable. Um, there's no structure to it, nothing at all. So definitely, um, work on yourself and work on the skills that you can kind of possess to then expand your portfolio of businesses and actually manage a wide variety of people at a high, high, high level. So thank you for all of that. So now let's just go quickly back to crypto uh, and then we'll go to um, the other topics. Where do you personally see cryptocurrency and blockchain technology uh, going in the future? A hundred percent governments and central systems and that's why it's it is the most ironic thing because everyone says oh crypto is decentralized crypto mm. will make its biggest mark in central systems because the whole notion of the, the the intrinsic value in crypto has the most value in government systems now what i mean by that is the fundamental mm. properties of blockchain the fact it's on a public ledger, the fact it's secure, the fact you can't, you know, forge NFTs and so on, you know, these intrinsic properties have the biggest role in government systems. If you can have a government distributed currency, which they're already talking about, by the way, G7, uh, which is seven you know, most powerful economies in the world are already, you can, you can mm -hmm. look this up, discussing about distributing a digital sort of dollar, a digital currency of sort, well, at least they're discussing the fundamental principles of it, you know, very basic early stage discussions. Mm. Um, but th this is this is where crypto is going. I, I think what's going to happen, I've this was my prediction about two years ago, was that there is going to be every country is going to have its own native cryptocurrency. and Governments are going to be implementing blockchain to solve as many legacy pain points in their systems and bureaucracy as possible. That is the ultimate apex for crypto and i think alongside that the nice thing about crypto though is one doesn't annul the other so just because governments and and, and banks and these big institutions are going to use crypto doesn't mean that there isn't the other stuff you know we ethereum still going to exist bitcoin still going to exist freedom mm. of kind of trading these currencies is still going to exist now look mm. i'm not here to debate 
whether I think crypto should be adopted by governments and banks. I think that's a whole different debate. I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now about, you know, the matrix and, you know, the government and control. That's a different debate. I'm, I'm here to kind of speak on this from a sort of utilitarian perspective and from a utilitarian mm. perspective, crypto does solve so many bureaucratic, bureaucratic legacy pain points in governments. And, and that's where it's going to go. I'm already uh, South Korea's implementing an ID system where you have an NFT ID that stores all your data on the blockchain, all your data in one easy to use, simple NFT uh, system. You've got carbon credits, like um, carbon offset certificates as NFTs. You've got, as I said, G7 working on this potential digital currency. You've got governments like in the Middle East, in the Gulf, looking at adding crypto into the supply chains. Um, all these different, this is the ultimate, that's the ultimate evolution of crypto, which hasn't been touched on yet. And I think when that happens, we will see a massive bull run. Like, I think a lot of people look mm. to the sort of bare bull cycles when it comes to, you know, the rainbow mega 360 cup on the chart and all these lines. But that's, that's great. You know, fantastic. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But in my opinion, bull run, the real, the, the like significant bull run, the life-changing bull run, when people say, oh, Bitcoin's going to, you know, however many dollars is going to happen when we start seeing that level of adoption. That is the true definition of mass adoption. And that's why it makes me laugh when I see these projects that say, oh, we're driving mass adoption. No, you're not. Like, I'm sorry, you're not. You're just like a, it, you know, it's a 5,000 generative NFT project where the utility is they donate 10% of the funds to charity. That's not driving mass adoption. That's just, that's a localized closed ecosystem, you know, that's promoting a certain message or charity. You know, great, fantastic. That, that's, I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad, but that's not mass adoption. Mass adoption, whether anyone, whether you think governments are bad or banks are bad or whatever, you know, whatever you think, mass adoption is when governments and banks and large-scale institutions implement blockchain solutions. That is the only notion of mass adoption. The idea that the globe is just going to sort of start using crypto without large institutions, just sort of people, you know, saying, oh, yeah, let's all use Bitcoin. It's, it's a fantasy. The, the government is too powerful to just sort of let that sort of spiral without any kind of intervention. It's just not going to happen. It's, it's a complete delusion from these decentralized maxis that think, that you know bitcoin is like going to solve all the world's problems it, that's just not how it works okay the government's going to get involved they are getting involved it's already happening and it, it's only a matter of time and in the net honestly any government and I, and I say this with chess any government that does not implement blockchain solutions in the next five years is going to be considered behind so in the same way that yeah. any government or country, first world, any any first world country that's not implementing like smart cities and like, e, you know, the like e-scooters and all this like environmentally friendly stuff right now is considered behind, right? Any country that's not like looking towards climate change, they're considered sort of, you know, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but they're commonly considered sort of behind, backwards, you know, not really up to date. And it's going to be the same with blockchain in five years. Any country that's not that's not adding this stuff to their systems, to their logistics, to their IDs, to you know whatever, it, it's just people are just going to look at it and say, "Well, you're just not at the the, the, the top end of the game. You're not at the cutting edge of technology right now." Um, and I've, as someone, you know, as a high end consultancy, I am actively 
you know, just so people know, this isn't just some pipe dream or some meaningless speculation, you know, because I know there's a lot of people that hate NFTs and hate crypto and think that it's all a dream. I am actively working with people at government levels to implement blockchain solutions on a cons as, a, as a consultant with uh, H7, like we're actively. Okay, so it's not just some dream that, you know, it may or may not happen in five years. It is happening now, like in real time, you're seeing the transition. Um, so, and yeah, now that's where I think crypto will, will go in the future. I think meme coins, I think sort of utility-less projects will die. And I think, but I, I do still think there's going to be community projects, networking projects, uh, goods, like maybe some crypto games that actually perform well. Um, some good NFTs, some good crypto coins that have an actual sort of good value towards something, they will still exist. I'm not saying they won't exist, but meme coins and the garbage projects are all going to be eliminated and governments are going to start adopting this at a, at a large scale. Yeah, yeah. Dot com era, in a sense, literally will repeat itself. Um, yeah, yeah. And we'll touch on it, we'll t we'll touch on it uh, at the end, but I know you just came back from Dubai. From also as well yes. as consulta consultation, which is we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but the entire scope, great view, great future viewpoint. I believe literally everything you just said. Um, you spoke touch on main thing is regulation, regulation and a centralization aspect of it. That's literally what it's going to become. So I was in conversation with a recent acquaintance of mine this week, uh, and we were talking about just the FTX debacle. Um, and he was saying that an unregulated industry will always attract players that intend to play the system. And as a society, um, we will all pay highly for highly regulated industries uh, for our own protection. Um, and overregulation is restrict restrictive, but underregulation continues to prove to be a disaster. What are your thoughts about this? Um, so. The first thing I would say to that is I think we need to be careful about exaggerating um, the situation relative to other industries. Okay, so I do think the FTX mm. situation is terrible. I think the guy should go to jail. And I, I know quite a lot about what's mm. going on. And I'll comment more on that in a second. But I think we just need to put it into perspective that there is a lot of other instances in history where you know, there's been an evangelized industry or a blown up market and people have found a way in the, in the, in the, in the, in the light of dereg of, of, of low regulation to, to make obscene amounts of money and screw people over. And, you know, I want to, I want to remind people that during the blitzkrieg in world war two, there is people that made a lot of money. People found ways to capitalize on the fact that people had to be in certain places at certain times during raids and stole items and then sold them. Okay. Now I'm not saying that that's the same as the FTX thing, but what I'm saying is that the, the idea that people cap capitalizing on a, on a sort of low or non-regulated industry, some exclusive thing to crypto is, 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 is false. And I think a lot of mainstream media and banks use it to attack crypto and say, oh, look, this is crypto. You see, hey, people just do what they want. It's all garbage. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just mayhem. It's just a bunch of scam. Like, you know. It, it, this is this is this is this has happened for decades in many other many other industries. There, I, I promise you, there has been worse, worse, worse scams. Uh, you know, with like penny stocks and and all sorts of stuff, exchanges mm. in the traditional finance market. Um, mm. I mean, even even things as simple like there was a, a long time ago. Um, there was a thing with tulips. 
It's, it sounds bonkers, but yeah, there was yeah. a thing where there was a, there was a, you guys can look it up. There was, there was like a tulip, tulip market blow up yeah. in the Netherlands. And what happened was people basically found a, a sort of, let's call it an exploit in trading where they could sell tulips for an extortionate amount of money to the Western market. And they did it. They, they got down, mm. did it. And then eventually it all came out. People went to jail, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, this stuff has happened for years and it's not something that's exclusive to crypto. However, th with saying that, there is definitely a point here that because crypto is so new and has evolved at a rate that is unprecedented, no one expected crypto to, to kind of move so quickly. Regulation is behind. So what that means is that um, centralized institu institutions like exchanges and big players are essentially regulating themselves amongst each other. So essentially mm -hmm. the people holding exchanges accountable are other exchanges, not governments, because governments don't know how to hold exchanges accountable because they, they've never existed in this, in this mm -hmm. format. So for example, if you, if you look at, if you look at FTX, the ultimate trigger point, I mean, okay, it's, it's debatable, but the real, for me, the trigger point was when CZ Binance looked at the, the back end of what FTX was and how these accounts were spread and what they were doing with their sister companies and so on and so forth and said, hold on a minute, like this is, this is <laughs> something's going on here that makes me not want to mm. acquire this company, nor invest in it, nor work with it. And with, and in fact, not only that, withdraw all my funds from it. Right. And, and, and have nothing to do with it ever again. Now it's funny because a lot of people say that, oh, well, the fundamental problem with the FTX thing was that it's centralized and centralized exchanges all suck. Anything centralized is the problem. Well, the, you know, it's, it's not really the case that the problem with FTX, with FTX was that it was a bad central exchange and a good central exchange, i.e. Binance, you know, made people aware of it and it just wasn't the government. So I, I but I do, I, I do agree with, you know, what your, what your friend said that, you know, over-regulation is, is something that we pay for, but under-regulation can, can be mayhem. And I think frankly, it's just that the government's uh, behind. Uh, and as much as the government can be oppressive and can be anti-crypto and can be this and can be that, it has to be said that at the end of the day, if we want to hold central exchanges accountable, we're going to need a government that's appreciative of crypto and understands how crypto works and can regulate on it. We, you can't have both ways. This is what's hilarious. Like you have people that say, oh, well, decentralization, I don't want governments to do anything in crypto. It should all be down to the people. People should be able to do what they want. You know, this sort of bourgeoisie individualism, you know, everyone can do what they want. You know, free market, this free market. Mm. Okay. But then, well, well when FB, SBF steals all your money, why are you asking him to go to jail? I thought everyone could do it. It's the free market, right? Oh, but government, please uh, arrest SBF. He's a criminal. Oh, 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 well, well, okay. Well, it's not centralized. It's not decentralized anymore, is it? So you can't have both ways. You can't say I'm a decentralization maxi. People should do what they want, but then also say, oh, I'm crying because SBF stole my money and, you know, exchanges suck. Unless the only argument that redeems that is saying what is logically is saying, oh, well, I think all central exchanges should also be banned and there should be no central exchanges at all. But I think if you, if you take that approach, crypto is never going to be mass adopted. So you're just in this infinite cycle of essentially a logical fallacy. When in reality, the most rational thing is to say, look, <laughs> governments can be oppressive. They can't, they, they, they can be over, you know, things can be overregulated, but ultimately central exchanges are, going to, are what's going to drive mass adoption to crypto. And it's proven. Okay. It's proven like the most volume, you know, the most volume, the most, uh, the place where people hold the most stables, all the statistics point to central exchanges being the ultimate platform for crypto. Okay. 
So central exchanges are essential to promoting crypto. And the only way those are going to be regulated is by governments having positions and laws and systems to deal with them. Okay. So the, I, you know, that's the only logical way to go at this, the, you know, so I think people need to just be honest with themselves and stop letting these dogmas, you know, people have these dogmas. I think this, I think that my position is this, and just kind of look at the situation practically and say, look, you've been essentially scammed by central exchange. The reason you've been scammed is because the regulation and the, 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 the reviewing parties haven't existed to look at what SPF was doing, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the founder of FTX, if, if someone doesn't know, um, and, and they kind of review what he's doing and say, look, this is wrong. The account, these accounts don't make sense. Those bodies haven't been there. So the, the key learning curve from FTX, as much as people don't want to hear it, is that we need more regulation on, on how central exchanges should behave. Um, does that mean that the government should now control everything and anything to do with crypto? No. One exchange goes down. Now you've got exchanges saying, oh, you know, I, you know, I don't want to get sued, but there's allegations around, you know, other exchanges like Gate.io, KuCoin. You know, I'm not saying they have any fact or validity, but you're starting to see this domino effect of everyone's accusing everyone. Now, I've seen people say, you know, USDT isn't trustworthy anymore. You've got, you know, people taking money out of stables. I've seen, I, I know a guy who's taken multiple six figures out of crypt, like crypto stables and put them back, in, back into a bank. Crypto people literally going back to banks and you have this weird dynamic that shows that fundamentally, whether it's crypto or legacy finance, corrupt people exist everywhere. And there is regulation that is needed everywhere. And the idea that crypto is sort of alien to that is just a complete fantasy. And I think that's why FTX shocked a lot of people because I, I think it broke this fantasy that crypto is immune to this kind of, kind of stuff. Um, and that crypto doesn't need regulation when it, when it, when it clearly does like it is, yeah. everything else in a functional society. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Glad we touched on that. And like, I feel like not a lot of people did people dismiss it. They majorly dismiss it. They kind of like, they know it's there, but they will just let it be. Um, they don't, that's the whole contradictory thing of it. Um, that keeps playing and playing and playing on. Um, so we just spoke about adoption. Um, and I want to kind of very raw topic, but what are your thoughts on the metaverse mm. and how do you think it will be adopted? <laughs> okay. So I've, uh, I I'm, I'm quite vocal about my opinions on like the metaverse and stuff. And I call a lot of people out right now. The only, okay. The metaverse right now, I don't care what anybody says. It is a glorified Minecraft with a VR headset. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. There, I'm sorry. Just tell me I'm wrong. It's, uh, it's yeah. Decentraland is just, it's, it's, it's a first person get mm. uh, sort of game world universe that mm. you play. It's just not a desktop screen. It's a VR screen. I, I think it was Elon Musk said that, you know, just because you got so close to the TV that it's now a pair of goggles in your eyes doesn't mean you're in the metaverse. <laughs> okay. It's just, it's, I'm yeah. sorry. It's just a, it's a hype train. However, I will say this, <laughs> the whole philosophically, the only way, or, or sort of, let's say rationally speaking, the only way a, a, a metaverse can exist is as an, an alternative reality. Okay. Mm. As opposed to a virtual reality. Now these are very different things. And I want to make this extremely clear. A virtual reality is something where you're in a localized world 
and you move and interact with things. That's been done on games. That's Roblox. That's Minecraft. It's just a VR headset. That's been done for years. It's nothing novel. It's just been called the metaverse because it integrates NFTs here and there. That doesn't make it the metaverse. It's just, it's just a Minecraft world with NFTs. Like, come on now. However, the metaverse can only exist if there is one world that is an alternative to the current world. So what I mean by that is the metaverse concept as people imagined it or envisioned it when it first sort of became popular only works when there is one universe where we do everything in the real world on this alternative digital reality and it's kind of, it becomes centralized. So there's one met, there isn't millions of metaverses owned by a bunch of companies. There's one, there's one, you live your social life there. You can do restaurants there. There's companies there. It's all on one. You have an ID there and it's consistent globally. The only way a metaverse can exist that isn't just some Minecraft copy, but you walk around doing nothing, staring at pictures is, is that is an alternative reality where it's literally just the world, but in digital format run by governments, run by all the corporations. And it's all, so it, you know, in a sense, almost decentralized. You'd have a, like in, in a weird way, you have a metaverse body like a, a, in real life, that would be sort of representative of each government, each company, and, and you'd, have, you'd build this alternative reality where we do a lot of things. Um, that, that, that's, in, in my opinion, that is the only way you can rationally say, yeah, we, this is a metaverse. This is, this is sort of alternative universe. Everything else is just, to me, a fad and has existed for years. VR games have existed. Mm. It's not really new. The only difference is that now people are starting to think, well, how can VR tech help with like the workplace and meetings? That's not the metaverse. That's VR tech. What's the, what's VR tech got to do with the metaverse? I mean, in my opinion, not a lot. It's just, it's, it's VR techs existed for a while. You've you know, the o Oculus Rift or whatever it was called, the goggles, right? They've been a thing for so long. And I think we have to be very careful using this buzzword metaverse because it's, it's, it's an excuse for a lot of projects that have no intrinsic value mm. to propagate this false sense of utility. Oh, we're in the metaverse. So what? But like, just because you have, if you have a useless piece, if you have a useless thing, and now that useless thing is also in a digital world where it's still useless, that I'm sorry, that doesn't make it useful. You just, it's just a useless thing twice. Or they say we're building a metaverse. And then they just, it's just like a, a sort of virtual two by two mm. room. And if you want to buy some goggles and go into it, you, I mean, Come on, man. That's not utility. Mm. That's just, it's just a joke. If I wanted like, you know, so a lot of projects are using this metaverse hype train as a, as a sort of a, a, a fad to kind of try and sell their project and make these fake roadmaps. And it's all a bunch of bollocks. And I think that's the, the meta stock price is demonstrative of that. I think people mm. believe the hype train. And I think now people are starting to understand that, you know, spending X million amount of dollars to live next to Snoop Dogg on a Minecraft world with better graphics is not, is not worth it, nor is it the metaverse, nor is it because, you know, a lot of people envisioned it kind of like, uh, like Sword Art Online, which is like this idea where mm -hmm. it's like this whole alternative universe and people lived almost their entire life on this universe, like a, it's like a cartoon or something. And, and it's just not that. And now when people are starting to realize that the meta stock's just gone, you know, it's just gone all, mm -hmm. I think people are starting to understand that right now you're just developing a, a VR tech that's maybe slightly better and more applicable to different circumstances at, at, at best really. Um, but yeah.
great explanation. Uh, it's good that we clarified all that up. And that's a very, um, it's a, it's a unique point of view. Not everybody has a point of view and that's good because the other point of view isn't the greatest and it's not really kind of, like I said, sustainable. It's just, it's not really going around. It's kind of representing the stock price as well right now. So we've kind of just talked about all of crypto. We've kind of, we'll just wrap crypto up right now and let's jump onto kind of more the juicier topic of the Andrew Tate's kind of rise to fame and power of influence, as well as his brother, Tristan, and just the Tate brothers in general. But you have a very, very unique and interesting point of view that I feel like is not spoken about at all enough. Um, and I would love for you to share that basically to everybody out there. Um, so yeah, what's your kind of like entire point of view of the entire situation, yeah. how they grew to fame? Yeah, um, I think the Tate brothers are a marketing geniuses in the sense of this whole new meta of cutting up reels, mm. affiliate marketing, making sub accounts. Mm. That's see, like this was never done before. I don't care. Like reels mm. existed, TikTok mm. existed, fine, but this idea of making sub accounts uh, mm. and kind of spreading viral content with these sub profiles is a new thing. Uh, yeah. And I think also the idea that they kind of use this affiliate marketing system through their, their university or so-called university program is also very smart. So I think they are marketing geniuses, but I also think maybe intentionally or not intentionally, they've, 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 they've managed to time themselves at a point where reactionary politics and viewpoints are extremely trendy and popular. So they've timed it perfectly now for someone that maybe doesn't understand what the word reactionary means necessarily. It means, um, in a sense, anti-enlightenment, like anti-ultra-progressivism. So what that means, for example, is let's say you have a middle line. Okay, and, and again, if you're like some political master science guy, you're gonna roast, this is a very simple explanation. Okay, so let's say you have a middle line, then you have people that wanna progress social liberties. Okay, people that say, Everyone should have equal rights. You know, people should be able to have whatever sexuality they want, blah, 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 blah. Social, social prog progressivists, so-called liberals, right? Stuff like that. Uh, and then on the other side, you have traditional people that believe in more traditional values. We shouldn't diverge from what we have already. So-called conservatives. This is the sort, mm. sort of line that goes on. Now, a reactionary is basically someone who notices a trend that's going too far this way mm. and then deliberately goes this way as soon as this goes too far. So they'll mm -hmm. say, so what you'll find is right now, so we went through a phase over the last decade, which was that being socially liberal was becoming quite popular. So the idea that, you know, uh, the rise of LGBTQ and uh, whatever it is now, um, and, 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 you know, the rise of globalism, the rise of social liberalism, the rise of, um, you know, a, a, a lot more social liber liberties, uh, sort of, female empowerment, all that kind of stuff. Really, it was trendy to be on that hype train. People forget this. It was very popular to be that. And you weren't, you weren't always, you know, you, you, you were part of a new thing to be that in the last decade or so. However, now mm. we've got to a point where it's trendy to be the opposite because some people would argue, I think it's a little exaggerated, but some people would argue it's gone too far this way. You know, now people can do what they want. It's, you know, you, can just, you know, people change the sexuality right, left, right, and center. It's, Basically, the enlightenment has gone too far, so now we must react, hence the word reactionary. So mm. what the Tates have done 
amazingly is they're propagating a reactionary message at a time where everyone thinks it's cool to be to be reactionary right now it's 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 it, i mean let's be honest that's not like to ourselves it's cool to be reactionary it's mm. it's it's trendy and becoming popular to be anti ultra woke anti ultra liberal anti ultra progressive mm. it's cool right now it's what if you want to be kind of you know with the times you know you're, you're kind of a especially as a man you, you kind of with that kind of stuff you, you want to be reactionary so their politics or their rhetoric i'm not saying i agree or disagree necessarily but what i'm saying is the timing of what they've done the the message they're putting out the type of rhetoric is perfectly timed everyone wants to hear right that right hear that right now and it's reaffirming what people want to hear everyone's been waiting for a reactionary idol donald trump was react was a reactionary idol to some extent but he was in the political sphere okay so people mm. and a lot of people feel detached from the political sphere right now they don't they, a lot of people feel disillusioned with politics so you now have a mr tate andrew tate he is now a reactionary idol and it's very popular people like it it's it's attractive you now have finally a guy that's reaffirming what a lot of people thought already and what a lot of people thought was cool to think already at a perfect time so firstly i like that that's my kind of understanding as to why he blew up he you know politically he was at a perfect time and in terms of just pure marketing with the reels and the cutting up uh, of content and reposting that was genius amazingly done and he's and he's and he's done it well another thing is that he's managed to touch on topics that people don't want to touch on a lot because a lot of people i don't know how to say this without being insulting but a lot of people aren't artic articulate enough to to talk about it okay so mm. a lot of people they, as soon as they hear andrew tate say something in a slightly articulate fashion it sounds so good because the internet has been so deprived of articulate conversation so deprived you know because we went through this phase mm. of like TikTok, people just dancing and this became popular and it, it and the internet was so deprived of any conversation that was to do with life goals and real kind of religion and, and, and gender roles and these kind of more real topics in that sense and it was so deprived that when andrew tate comes along in an articulate fashion and really goes in deep into these topics if people think that's that's amazing because people because people don't read nowadays they don't they don't read they <laughs> yeah. don't read they don't research so 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 they don't have any other source of articulate information on this level so you know and it's not like all these random streamers and tiktok dancers have the articulate ability to go into this because they're just not they're a not interested or b they just don't have the mental capacity unfortunately you know i don't want to sound rude but that's just what it is they just don't have the mental capacity you know that they're just focused on other things so andrew tate is someone who is you know a smart guy he's a he's an intelligent guy he's well spoken he's articulate you know he comes along and discusses these these topics then it's it's it, it resonates people want to hear it people are people are tired of the same old you know garbage you see just girls shaking their ass you know like people dancing like people were tired of it you know because that's all we've been bombarded with for the last five years you know it's 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 you know so it's, mm. it's it's all kind of dynamic in real in real time um so that's how i think they they came about but i think you know and i'm, I'm gonna go on for a little bit here and kind of 
Of course, yeah. Uh, go into a few different topics. Um, but I think the masculinity thing is the most interesting. Now, my take on this is I do think there is a crisis in masculinity. However, I think that people don't understand where that crisis originates from. And this is the key point for me. I think the masculinity crisis originates from the fact that before a man's purpose was largely designated from the fact they had to work and earn and do stuff to take care of a woman because of that, that's how the gender roles were. Okay. So, but now that there is female empowerment, female, you know, again, people will debate me on this female equality, you know, okay. Females can do what they want. They don't gen essentially gender roles are not traditional anymore. Now that leaves a man and the masculine role in crisis. Why? Because as a man, if you've got generations upon generations that have always been told, I mean, I, even my, even my dad, right. You know, he said, you know, he lived in a mining town. They said, just forget school. You're going to go get a job and do this and do that so that you can take care of a woman. That was essentially the purpose of a man was to work and do X and do Y to take care of a woman. That's what it was. Now that doesn't exist anymore. So what does the man do? So there's a crisis at this point. So the man has two avenues. One, say that women should go back to those traditional values so that the man can do, or you just feel, or the man feels lost and says there is no purpose. Mm. And, and, or, well, if, if the person isn't thinking fully rationally, these are the two avenues you go down. You feel that the masculine role is at crises because this, this old purpose of serving or not serving, but taking care of a woman doesn't exist anymore. And there is no external voice saying to men, your purpose is now to do this, right? It, it just didn't exist. So there is this masculine crisis now where a lot of men who don't, aren't, don't have the mental strength to build their own purpose without external validation, need a voice to tell them this is your new purpose. Now that your purpose isn't just working and making money to take care of a woman, right? And that's why Andrew Tate resonates. And I think Andrew Tate has done a great job in propagating a masculine uh, message to give men purpose in a time where a lot of men feel purposeless because of this transition. However, and I think Andrew Tate is great in that sense. And I respect him very much on that level. I think he's a very, very solid motivator and, and realist for, for the men and what they need to do. However, I, I do think the notion that the way you empower men is by telling them that they should go back to this time where they all they had their purpose came from taking care of a woman and and being masculine for women. I don't think that's healthy. I think the better option is to say, look, we need to accept the fact that whether we like it or not, a lot of women now do their own thing and don't necessarily need a man to take care of them. But you can still have a purpose regardless. Men can still mm. have value. Men don't, you know, even if men don't need to take care of women, you, there is still such a thing as masculinity. You can have your own, you, know, you go out there, have a purpose, do have drive, have this, have ambition. And I think, you know, you have to be careful with it, but I think Andrew Tate's done an okay job of propagating that at a time where it's more or less not non-existent. However, my main issue with Andrew Tate, well, not issue, but, I think interesting point of, of focus. I think he has misunderstood, not out of bad intention. He has good intentions, but he's misunderstood 
this idea of the matrix and the enemy. And I think that's where he's made a drastic error. And I think a lot of people are jumping on this matrix bandwagon without, because again, these people have never read anything. They don't understand state apparatus. They don't understand philosophy. They don't understand geopolitical history. So th this notion of the matrix is very easy to understand. People just jump on it and it's like, oh, well, the enemy is just like all the government and the state and the, and the bank and the si the system as if it's mm. all one thing. And, and, and it's, it's, it, I don't think Andrew understands exactly how state apparatus works. And I think he's mislabeled the enemy as the matrix. And you have to be extremely careful with that notion. And the reason you have to be extremely careful with that notion is twofold. One, the matrix doesn't hold anyone accountable. Who is the matrix? No one's accountable. You're just, you're just labeling this abstract. There is no one to attack. The enemy is, is invisible. You are giving the enemy an invisible cloak because you're not holding anyone accountable. What is the matrix? The, the government is made of people. There is individuals that have their own morals, their own ethics, their own systems, as if, you know, as if people just merge into a system and just become the matrix. It's, 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 it's a misunderstanding of the enemy. You know, so you have to, you know, look, I'm not saying Andrew Tate's got bad intentions. He has very good intentions and I get what he's trying to do. He's trying to say that we have to look up instead of at each other, you know, as, in terms of the enemy, but the matrix is a, is a bad, bad way to do it because you, all you do is risk yourself becoming morally objectable at a, at a romanticized excuse that isn't even real. And you forget, you end up forgetting true accountability. There is going to be some CFOs of banks, which are scumbags that treat people horribly and the screw the systems. There's going to be some people that work at banks, which are perfectly good people that have their own morality and ethics and have never done a bad thing in their life. And to just lump them into this stupid abstract notion of the matrix is honestly just a cop out for people that don't understand state apparatus and don't really understand who the enemy is. Um, that's my first, sorry, again, going on. No, you're good, bro, you're good. That's my first, <laughs> that's my first issue. Um, my second issue, well, issue, but point is I don't respect, I can't reconcile the fact that they made money from only fans models. I just can't, I don't mm. see how you can propagate yourself as a, tr a traditionalist, someone mm. who thinks women should stay indoors and, and that's, and, you know, and, and, and that, you know, could behave in a traditional sort of non-fetishized manner and then make money from OnlyFans because you are then propagating the very thing that you mm. completely speak out against. I mean, it's no, it's no a uh, uh, hidden truth that OnlyFans models on average have probably got the highest body counts on the planet because their whole life is about sex and it's the adult industry. So how can mm. you say that a, a woman is worse off with a higher body count, but then propagate and make money from an industry that, you know, you know, puts forward women into adult industries where they're going to have a higher body count. I mean, I guess you could say, well, I'm just making money and money's money, but <laughs> well, that makes you a hypocrite as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, but no, I, I, I have to say, like, I, I respect Andrew Tate greatly. And I think what he's done is good to a large extent, but I think he's in, in a rush to become viral. He's missed two crucial points. And I would, and I think he has good intentions. He's mistargeted. And because a lot of the, a lot of the people he podcasts with don't challenge him on anything because they don't have the intellectual capacity to. 
Mm. They just think, oh, well, he's speaking eloquently somewhat on this, that, and the other. Therefore, you know, he must, like, everything he's saying must be absolute. But I think, actually, honestly, I think Andrew Tate would much appreciate someone going to him and genuinely having a, a serious debate with him on respectfully and, and having some interesting dialogue with him because I think no one gives him that. It's all these streamers like Aiden Ross mm. who just sit there like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I am a loose. Like, okay, you know, great. That's not, that's, that's, that's no intellectual value at all. Um, but yeah, I know. I think he's drastically misunderstood the matrix and, and don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a victim of what he calls the matrix, right? I've had my bank accounts closed. My dad was a minor and he got caught up in strikes where the police would beat people for no reason and jail people. Like I, I like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not one of these people that says, oh, the matrix isn't bad because I've never felt it. Trust me, I felt high power. I felt establishments. I felt institutions in ways I can't even describe on online. But I still mm. think that you have to be extremely careful. And I would encourage anyone who thinks, oh, the matrix sucks, blah, blah, blah. Just read a little bit, read a little bit about history, about how the world works, read some books, understand what central powers are and find the good ones from the bad ones. Don't just find the easy way out and say, oh yeah, everything sucks. Therefore I can do what I want. Cause that's not, that's not mm. helping anyone. And you'll find you end up just becoming the very thing you seek to destroy. Cause everyone has a choice to do good or bad. And you can't just blame the system. That doesn't, doesn't fix anything. You, you in fact, you know, if anything, you're just playing into the system's hands. Cool. Go, go do something stupid in, in the name of anti-system. They'll just put you in jail. Mm. Nice. You know, it's, it's, you've, you're, you're not, you're not really doing much. Um, but yeah, no, I think Andrew Tate's very interesting. I think he's a net positive for humanity. I think he's done great in empowering men. I can name friends that have said, look, I'll start going to the gym. I'll start doing this because they feel empowered. Because mm. as I said before, there is a masculinity crisis because of this change of gender roles. Andrew Tate's done great in that front. I just think he's, he's, he's misunderstood, not out of bad intention, you know, different areas that he, he comments on. And to be honest, as I said, I think I, I'd love to pod, I'd love to podcast with him. I, I honestly would love to podcast him with him. I think I, I offer an insight that he would much appreciate because we actually come from a relatively similar background and story. And I can actually offer an articulate debate on his thoughts and views that I honestly think he would appreciate and uh, use to, to further better his message. Not, not, um, you know, not just sit there and call him a misogynist or just call him an idiot. Cause that doesn't solve this. Is the problem. This is why he always seems right. Because people just sit there and just saying, oh, you're a misogynist. You're, you're this buzzword, you're that buzzword. Or then, and then people say why, and then they don't know what to say. And then they just look like idiots. When in reality, he's not, you know, he's just sitting there shouting that he's a misogynist and fix anything, you know? Mm. So yeah, no, I'd love to podcast him, uh, with him one time and, uh, yeah, no, offer some insights. Cause I think I can help propagate his message and, uh, yeah, no, but interesting characters for sure. Definitely generation shaping, you know, that they're, they're generation shaping, they're affecting a whole generation, um, if not multiple generations. So it'll be interesting to see how they play out with this whole, uh, censorship lock. Um, I think people need to be careful as well about saying that, you know, censorship, oh, the world's going to zero because Andrew Tate got deplatformed. Do I think Andrew Tate should have got deplatformed? No, but trust me, there is worse censorship in the world. That like uh -huh. the idea that these big, big companies and banks and stuff like that, are, you know, their main priority is deplatforming Andrew Tate. And that's going to change the, the sort of geopolitical and 
socioeconomic uh, uh, balance of the world is ludicrous. Trust me, there is worse censorship. Like I'm talking like there is companies that like, and this isn't conspiracy theory. Like you can look up in history, there's companies that have gone to places, murdered people to set up like oil fields. And there's companies that censor people, have had people killed. I mean, there is serious, like that's censorship guys. Like that's people mm. being bribed in governments to not speak. That's, that's the, that's the matrix. Okay. Mm. Andrew Tate being deplatformed sucks and it's, and it's, and it's devolving discourse. Sure. But it's, it's not, it's a missed target of the real, the real problem. And that's just the thought I want to leave. I want to leave it on, um, for, for the viewers and the, and the listeners. That's a very, very powerful viewpoint in general. Um, and I'm sure the offers on the table, you just put the offer on the table. If this gets traction and I'm sure it will, yeah, yeah. you can never know what happens. And I really hope something actually does come out of this because it, it actually provide you're providing with an actual real debate. Let's give them something real. Um, and let's challenge some real proper viewpoints. Um, let's not go along with every single like famous streamer out there. So yeah, very good points we've touched on and just, yeah, you covered a multitude of things that were not spoken enough. So I appreciate that. Um, so now let's thank talk more for, about, thank you for hosting it. Of course. Thank you. So now let's briefly, so we, we briefly spoke about this before the podcast episode, um, about how you structure your goals and what do you actually place importance on when, um, you have a desired outcome you want to achieve, but let's dive more back into like the business sense, um, and your goals and how you achieve your desired outcomes. Yeah. Um, so in terms of goal setting, I try and, um, so what I try and do is I try and structure it in a couple of ways. So I'll, I'll have like a wider plan. So you can't see it on my screen right now, but I have like a big whiteboard. And in fact, I don't want to show it cause it's got a lot of private stuff, but it's just like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the ultimate plan. What I see in like what I want to build before X age. Okay. And it's very, and it's ambitious. It's extremely ambitious. What I want to mm. build. You know, I, you know, I, I'm, I, can't, I can't even dive into it yet, for, you know, cause I want to keep it kind of private and work on it and stuff. But, you know, I have a very ambitious wider goal of what I want to achieve, you know, and that, and I think everyone should have that. that that's like your purpose, right? So that's not really from like a business perspective, but that's like on a, on a, on a wider level. What is, what do you, what, what do you think you're here to do? You know, what do you want to look at the end of your life and say, I've done this. Okay. But then you have the, the but you can't just only use that because for a lot of people that will just seem unattainable and you'll never get that sense of satisfaction and you'll kind of be stuck in this hypothetical forever. And you don't want that. So, you know, you kind of have your big, your potentially hypothetical, potentially real ambitious target and purpose. But before that, you know, I have very simple and small sub steps that I make very clear and concise to myself so that I, I know I'm going to hit them. Right. So for example, I won't just like, when I set a goal, it won't just be like, oh, build X company, reach X million revenue. Like I don't do goals like that. I'll do goals on a much more like strict and, 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 and a slimmer level. So I'll say by X day, I want to have this exact system done in this way. And I want to make sure it's done in like, you know what I mean? Like very exact mm. goals. Um, because I think it's too easy to set these vague targets like, oh, in Q4 mm. of X, I want to do this. Like, you know, it's so vague that you can half achieve it. You can half not achieve it. 
you can sort of just forget about it in a week. You know, it's too, I've seen so many people that spend too much time saying what they want to mm. do instead of laying out an actual blueprint of what they are going to do. So for example, if I say I want to fix X operation by Y date in, in, in Z format, and I'm going to do this tomorrow, like literally, like literally all this week, that is a very exact, concise blueprint of what I'm mm. going to do this week to achieve, to, to achieve what I need to achieve. But you know, if you just say, oh, in, you know, in six months, I want to, you know, I want to, this company should be good or whatever. Like I want to have this growing or like, it's, it's too vague. And I think that's why it's good to have one big, vague purpose, not, not vague, but sort of, you know, more abstract, let's say uh, a more long-term thing, just one overhead motivation or concept that you strive towards and every, so that when you do these micro things, you can always refer back to that and say, well, why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing this for the, the over, overriding reason, but then everything, everything else should be extremely concise and extremely short term, because I think that's what actually helps you get things done. And I think a lot of people, especially people my age, like teenagers and a victim of just infinite planning. Oh, we're going to do this in Q4. We're going to do this in Q1. We're going to lay it out like this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. It's a giant to-do list of meaningless stuff that isn't extreme, excuse me, extremely concrete. Um, so I think if you're doing like short-term goals, I think the key is just literally de almost do it in the blueprint, like almost say the solution or the, the action in the blueprint, like literally like, you know, I'm going to go on this tool and do this. I'm going to set it up and I'm going to do it in three days max. And anything beyond that is a failure and a loss of time, you know, and it, cause it also stops you mm. working on things for too long. Cause let's say in the blueprint, you've said this should take realistically five days and you, and, and it's a month and you haven't done it. Like you need to scrap that idea and move. The solution was wrong in the first place. Okay. And, and it's good cause it helps you like measure timelines and yeah, that's how I do things. And in terms of like practically how I manage tasks and stuff, I, a lot of it is just mental. Sometimes I use like a whiteboard, like I said, to kind of map out what I need to do today or in the next week, max. Mm. And then I have one whiteboard, which is like this massive one, which is just like the, the whole, <laughs> it's like the whole matrix of what I'm doing, like <laughs> everything, you know, it's like the, the, the whole purpose, the whole, like, I mean, I've, I've even written, believe it or not, like volumes of, um, it's quite <laughs> a weird one. Actually. I've, I've written like my own volumes of kind of what I want to do my position on morality and ethics, my position on a lot of geopolitical issues on it, on, on the planet. So I think mm. it's always good to kind of come, like write down your, your greater thoughts. Let's say your higher thoughts as, as mm. ancient Greeks would call them. Um, so that you can have this constant reference point of you know, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Cause I feel like a lot of people, when they get like six months to, you know, sort of two years into business, they're like, you know, you hear this stuff all the time that, you know, I started making some money, but then I just, I felt purposeless. Why, why am I making money? What am I like? Mm. Okay, I bought the Lambo, I bought the watch, yeah. you know, but now what? You know, like, and I feel like loads of people fall victim into that. And the reason they do is because they don't have this wider purpose or wider written idea of like, what, what, what is your ideal? What are you striving towards ultimately in, in, in the more abstract sense? Um, I think everyone should have that. And I think anyone who doesn't have that should, should uh, read. I, I think reading is so underrated. And I don't just mean, I don't just mean reading like, how to influence people or the lean startup. Like, I mean, like real reading, man, like, like mm. read philosophy, like read, mm. like it's, it's, it's become very unpopular and people think it's lame and it's just boring and a waste of time. But like, honestly, like if you don't know why you're doing what you are doing, you will never, ever, ever be successful because, or, or you might mm. be successful, but you'll never be fulfilled. And, and happiness only comes from fulfillment. Every great thinker, 
almost besides like the odd pessimist or nihilist concurs that happiness comes from fulfillment and you will only feel fulfilled if you have an ideal if you have a, a greater purpose and you and, and i just don't believe you can get that without some degree of experience and and, and or reading and if you don't have the the experience and force it through reading you know read some great philosophers read some great books and it'll when you when you change your perspective on how you think the world should progress you'll, you'll start to say yeah you know i bought the lambo i bought the watch i bought this i bought that but you know that's great but i'm i'm gonna still keep going because i have a greater thing to strive towards you know and if you don't have that a lot of people just feel a dead end they become that's why you, you know all these rich people you know sometimes you hear oh the rich person's depressed or whatever like this is why i think you know they don't have this greater purpose in mind and they just get they just get bored you know they just get bored of all this materialism and hedonism um but yeah that's kind of how i work with goals and, and, and purpose and, and stuff like that yeah i love that i love that a lot um and i used the you said it again but you keep going back to reading and that's so so powerful when it's not said enough again so yeah you broke down a very 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 structured way to kind of own your life through goals your goals and the power of reading and actually educating yourself probably and especially in this day and age in this world and i think that yourself you're only 19 years old i think those also like you said those are one of the two of them big attributes to your early success. Are there any other, would you say, other major components that you think would have contributed to your early success? Um, I think, to be honest, I think um, language, like, oh, yeah. I guess that ties a little bit into like the reading and stuff. But I think I think people really underestimate your ability to have a good articulate way of speaking. Mm to have good, a good set of vocabulary to know how to elaborate on things without sort of stuttering or not knowing what to, not, you know, not knowing what to say and having no opinion. Like if you can be well-spoken, it is one of the greatest assets I have ever seen. Like I can, you know, to be able to go into a subject where, you know, really not a lot and still be able to hold conversation and, and engage someone you know, or like engage with someone who knows a lot about a subject is such a great skill. So I think, again, I guess that ties into reading, but definitely having a good vocabulary and good language. Uh, but I also think like my parents as well, like, cause interestingly, like my parents have never been, you know, wealthy that came, as I said, came from extremely sort of working class background, but they always encouraged me to like work hard and be humble. You know what I'm saying? Because I think it's almost, it's almost a blessing that I came from a working class background, because what it meant is that I, a lot of the humility and, and sort of humbleness that comes from having that background is then translated into day-to-day -day actions. Even if I acquire a lot of wealth for my age, well, not just for my age, just in general. Right. So, you know, because I feel like a lot of people don't have that hunger. They don't have that sort of humbleness. They don't have that sense of hard work because their parents don't haven't really instilled it in them. Whereas with my parents, I feel like they've very much instilled it in me because not, you know, it, you know, just because of their attitudes and because of their way, like the way they grew up and they know what it is to like struggle for stuff like a lot. Um, and I think that's given me a certain edge that a lot of like, people don't have, cause they just don't have that same hunger for things. Like, so I remember like when I first started earning, okay, amounts of money, 
I was like, well, I realized that like a lot of people, they were born with so much money that they could do anything. And I was like, well, my dad, like, how do I, what do I do? Like, there's these people that are just born into families with millions, you know, and I'm and like, I'm doing well, but like, it feels like I'd, ne I'd never be able to catch up. Like, how do I, how do I beat these people? It feels like we were born to not fail, but we were born to be left compartmentalized into this sort of, you know, we'll always work, you know? So, and I was like, well, what, what do I do? And he said, well, you just have to work harder and smarter than everyone else. And you have to just stay humble and stay and stay patient. And you will just win because one person with passion is better than 99 people with interest. Okay. So a lot of these people mm -hmm. that don't have that hunger, they have some interest, only interest because they already have the money. So it's only an interest, not passion, you know, business, they don't have a passion in business building. They just have a bit of money and they're going to use it for something. So they have a bit of an interest, but you know, if you have a real passion, um, you know, I've heard a lot of things going around that passion sucks and it's all a lie. It's all scam, blah, blah, blah. But your passion can be like, I've heard this, I've heard this thing being said that, you know, oh well, people that make millions from like selling concrete or whatever, they're, they're not passionate for concrete. Yeah. But they'll have a passion for business building and so, and like, and like making money and like making things work and making systems that work. Like there's always a, if someone's passionate at something, a passion doesn't have to be like a, a known subject, like painting or music or whatever. It just means being almost addicted to, to doing something well, um, you know, and, and, and relentlessly not being able to sleep without, without doing it well. So, you know, that can be concrete, it can be anything, it can be any industry, it can be business building, whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I think a lot of the things that my parents passed down to me about kind of working hard and, you know, really doing things proper and staying humble and, and being passionate about making things work has, has helped me a lot. I mean, like people that know me personally, right? Like I don't, I went through like a phase, like, and, and I'm, I'm dead serious about this. Like I didn't like, I didn't go out to any parties. I didn't like, I, I need, like, I, I want to emphasize this. Like the amount of work I did to get to this point is like, is unhealthy. Like it is literally unhealthy. Like I, I went to stages where like, I was, I was sleeping for like five hours and I was, and, and there was no weekends. The, the, the whole notion of weekday and weekend doesn't exist for me. Like, and I'm not saying everyone should strive to do that, but what I'm saying is like to, to be passionate about something is, is extreme. Like you'll feel it. Like, it's not just like, oh, I want to do this. Like it's to a point where it's like, people will think you're weird for how much you're doing it. Like, I don't. I don't go to parties, man. Like, I don't like, obviously when I travel for business and stuff, you know, now that I'm a bit more, things are a bit more automated. I do go to the old party networking event conference, but like, even like, even like a before, like a year ago, man, like I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. I was just working all the time, all the time, mm -hmm. nonstop 24 seven. And it's, it's extreme, but you, sometimes you just have to dig that passion out of you and you'll know, like this thing you'll, you'll know, like you'll hide when you, when you realize how extreme, like, you don't realize until someone else says to you, like, man, like, this is extreme. Like, you don't, you sure you don't mm. come out with the, with the guys and do a bit of this. And like, if, if you, if you find yourself saying no, like, that's when you know you've, you're, you're, you're really, you're passionate for what you're doing. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a huge thing that, that I find has helped me succeed. I don't really believe in like talent and, and stuff like, I think hard work mm. will always be like people that are talented, hard work and passion towards something. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think those are values that my parents have instilled in me and have uh, served me extremely well um, throughout the whole business journey. 
and we'll, uh, we'll keep doing so. I mean, this is the nice thing. I'm, I'm quite young, so I'm quite early, so I'm just getting started. I have a lot of big plans, a lot of big things coming. Um, you know, I'm going to be launching my personal brand properly, like truly, uh, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so I have a lot of things coming, you know, growing in the renewable energy sector, you know, looking to expand into different uh, continents and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, no, I've got a lot coming and I'm going to stay, stay as diligent as possible. I love that. I also like the point where you said hard work and passion. It's two, two of the essential needs of a man. Um, and yeah, you're growing your personal brand. Um, I feel like this is a good place to also end it and um, wrap it up. And that was a perfect topic to cover. Um, so I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, bro. Uh, and so the time that you've spent today has been much appreciated. This has been a very long episode. Uh, and I'm grateful for yes. being the entire length because the entire time it's been straight value. We haven't missed a second of a deep conversation. So I'm going to attach all your social medias below in the podcast description, but is there any specific, specific ways where listeners can actually learn more about you directly or want to get in contact with you? Um, cause I know you're growing your personal brand. So is there any way you want preference yeah. of contact? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to be launching a YouTube channel soon where I'll be posting a lot of content similar to what we've been discussing. So obviously you, you guys will be able to kind of follow those videos as they come out. Um, but in terms of personal contact, I'm always on discord. That's where I started. Right. So you can always find me on Hell discord yeah. and I'm responsive. Like I, I'm not an asshole. Like, you know, ask me a question, like I'll, mm. I'll answer whatever you guys want. Um, so yeah, I'm always on discord. Awesome. So I'm going to wrap this up. If you found value in this podcast, please feel free to share it to anyone that would also find value from it. And if you want to join Cascade, click the link in the Instagram bio um, and all this Cascade social media will be attached below. Um, and it is just Cascade uh, CLB um, across all platforms. So thank you again for your time, Enrico, and to everyone that listened and thank tuned you. into this conversation.